Rise and shine, this is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band across Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band across far West Africa. I'm Jazar Rad. In the studio with me with your news, Onele Nsensi, Tabisa Lihoko with your final economic report and Mosi Budimakura with your final sports update coming up later on. Our top stories here on Africa rise and shine this hour. Deputy President of Kenya, William Ruto's defense team is pushing for a ruling of no case to answer at the ICC. The United Nations says evidence on the ground indicates that some civilians trapped in the besieged Syrian town of Madaya have been dying from starvation. Sports-wise, Wonders Cricket Ground is well prepared for the final test between the Proteas in England. Now with the news, here is Onere. Thank you, Jess. Now looking at your news update. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe is reported to have collapsed after suffering a heart attack while on holiday at an undisclosed location with his family and is in a critical condition. His spokesperson, George Taramba, has refused to comment. Sources close to the president are said to be holding high-level meetings as it is believed he may not recover. Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto's defense team is pushing for a ruling of no case to answer, saying the prosecution has not presented enough evidence to convict them of crimes against humanity. Ruto and former radio journalist Joshua Seng returned to the International Criminal Court at The Hague on Tuesday in a bid to have crimes against humanity charges against them dropped. The court case for both Ruto and Seng is expected to continue until Friday. Jack Perrick reports from The Hague. A similar case against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta was dropped here at the International Criminal Court at the end of 2014. The prosecutor of the ICC says the Kenyan government has tampered with witnesses and forced them to recant evidence in both the Kenyatta case and this one. The Kenyan government has campaigned against the court's permission for recanted evidence to be used in the Ruto trial. If the defence is unsuccessful in getting the trial terminated, it will continue well into next year and is likely to play a major role in the Kenyan elections in 2017. Sudan will hold a referendum in Defoe on April 11th to the 13th over whether or not the Wartan region will stay divided into five states or reunite as one entity with a degree of autonomy. The splitting of Defoe into five states was one of the main reasons the deadly conflict there arose in the first place. The referendum, referendum was agreed upon in the 2001 Doha peace deal that the government signed in Qatar with the Liberation and Justice Movement, an umbrella organization of small rebel groups. Verts University in South Africa has denied claims by students that they were assaulted and sexually harassed while being evicted from the university's senator house. Students began protesting on Monday demanding their tertiary education and for the scraping of registration fees. This is part of the hashtag fees must fall campaign. University spokesperson Sharona Patel. 
The university denies these claims. As might be expected, during the eviction, there were some scuffles. The eviction was captured on CCTV cameras and observed by managers. And the university can make this footage available to those who want to come and view it at the university. A review of the footage will show that there is nothing to support these claims. In fact, the footage shows some protesters threatening others, including security officers, and four security officers were injured and treated for minor injuries uh, after the scuffles. And finally, a new report by the United Nations has documented that the world should prepare for an overall increase in the number of people who are migrating away from home. The report, titled Trends in International Migrant Stocks, says the number of international migrants is growing faster than the global population. Bella Harvey is from the UN's Department of Economic and Social Affairs. At the global level, I think it's important to note that the number of international migrants is growing faster than the total population, which shows there is greater mobility and a demand for migration, and we should prepare for that. As a proportion of the total population, it's still relatively small because it's about 3% of the... Channel Africa News, I'm Onilintzintzi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. I don't have my script, but I'm going to go with this. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, okay. but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Seven minutes after eight, this is Africa Rise and Shine. Voices are rising against the involvement of the Secretary General of the East African Community, the Rwandan Richard Sezibera, in the political dialogue underway in Burundi as a consequence of the rift between Burundi and Rwanda. Months after diplomatic incidents saw him violently manhandled by Burundian security officers, officers in October 28, 2015, while he was in that country on official duty. Some politicians and civil society activists are arguing that Dr. Sezibera should not be involved in the dialogue, accusing him of acting on behalf of the radical opposition and the Rwandan president against the current Burundian government. Bernard Bankukira sent us this report from Bujumbura. 
se basant sur le comportement ayant le côté penchant du secrétaire This is Penta Haimana, National Coordinator of the African Compassion Ministries, one of the civil society organizations in Burundi, in her statement rejecting the involvement of the Secretary General of the East African Community, the Rwandan Richard Sezibera, in the current political dialogue Burundi, accusing him of favoring the opposition. She urges the Ugandan president, the mediator in the current dialogue, not to allow Dr. Sezibera interfere into the conflict of Burundi. Speaking in an exclusive interview following the statement, Ms. Pentahaimana says the EAC Secretary General is not a reliable person to take part in the dialogue. For her, Dr. Sezibera is leaning on the side of the National Council for the respect of the Arusha Agreement, the Constitution, the rule of law, Sena Red, in short, a radical opposition movement composed of political figures in exile following the turmoil underway in the country. Accused of being dictated by the ruling party, Ms. Spenta bashes these allegations, saying her organization is an independent body militating for building the country. Richard Sezibera, what we accuse him, uh, you know the Sinarate, there is a, the movement of Sinarate, some Burundians who are out country, they try to be together and they form the Sinarate. He called them in Uganda to meet them before, but he didn't invite the representation of the, our government, but he called the representation of Sinarit. It shows that he has a position. That's why he said that he cannot have a contribution in inter-Burundian dialogue. So you accuse him of uh, favoring the, yeah, the, the opposition? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It mm. shows that he has a, a position. An opinion accuses your association of uh, being dictated by the ruling party and the government. Now, what do you think of this accusation? I think that is not true. Uh, first, our association be- began in 2000. And uh, also, in our code of conduct, we have to build our country. We don't have to, to destroy our country. It means if we see someone who is trying to build the country, we have to support him. That's why I can say that we are for the ruling party or what. But our target is to build the country and to support anyone who is trying to build the country. These accusations against the DAC Secretary General come days after the recusal formulated against him last week by the chairman of the National Liberation Forces, FNL, an opposition party believed to be a close ally of the ruling CNDFTD party. For Jack Bigirimana, chairman of FNL, Dr. Richard Sazibera should not be part of the mediation team in the Burundian conflict, considering a deepening rift prevailing between Burundi and Rwanda. Mr. Bigirimana accused him of siding with the Burundian opposition and acting for the interests of the Rwandan president, Paul Kagame, in his stance against Burundi president, Pierre Nkurunziza, and his government. This assault against the DAC Secretary General vis-à-vis the political dialogue process underway in Burundi came months after a dramatic breach of protocol and respectful treatment against him at the Burundi Senate while in the company of Ugandan Defense Minister Crispus Kiyonga, special envoy of Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni and the ESC's appointed mediator in Burundi crisis on December 28th. As the political dialogue among Burundian stakeholders in Entebbe, Uganda, kicked off, opposition leaders inside Burundi accused Dr. Sezibera of refusing the floor to intra-parliamentary and extra-parliamentary opposition in favor of the opposition leaders in exile. Till now, neither the EAC Secretariat nor the mediation team has reacted on the Burundi complaints against Dr. Richard Sezibera. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bojumbura.
and I knock off at nine o'clock, I can meet you anyway. Okay, Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto and former radio journalist Joshua Sang referred to the International Criminal Court on Tuesday in a bid to have crimes against humanity charges against them dropped. And they're accused of perpetrating and sponsoring the 2007 post-election violence in which 1,200 people were killed, thousands displaced. They both deny the charges. The case comes just over a year before Kenya heads to another general election in which Ruta will back President Uhuru Kenyatta for re-election for a second term. The ICC dropped similar charges against Kenyatta last year. Sarah Kimani reports. Ruto and Sang, through their lawyers, want the cases dropped, arguing that the prosecutor has failed to link them to the crimes they are accused of committing. They are charged with murder, forcible transfer of persons, and persecution. Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda says witnesses were intimidated or bribed to withdraw their testimonies. George Kegoro is a lawyer as well as the executive director of Kenya Human Rights Commission. The no case to answer submission can be upheld. If it is upheld, that will be the end of the case. Both Ruto and Sang will be acquitted and they will not be required to offer defense. The second scenario is that the no case to answer submission will not be upheld. It will be dismissed. If it is dismissed, then Ruto and Sang will be legally required to offer a defense uh, for themselves. The case has dragged on for four years. There has been another election since, and Kenya is due for an election next year. Kenya has the backing of the African Union to have the cases dropped. Kegoro again. The cost for the country, politically and diplomatically, has been high because our collective effort, our collective identity, our collective resource as a country is what has been put at the deployment of the, of the two uh, in what is essentially a private matter for themselves. The case against President Kenyatta and three other persons charged alongside him and his deputy has since been dropped. There has been a failure all round. There has been a failure by the ICC. There has been a failure by the Kenyan um, national domestic uh, systems to provide expeditious justice for the people who, uh, who demand and people who deserve it. And that is part of the failures that we are living with. This week's case is a big test for the International Criminal Court, which 13 years after it was set up has just had two successful convictions. The outcome of the four-day hearings will determine the fate of the cases and to some extent Ruto's political future as he seeks the presidency in 2022. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Liqua, Ikreli, 
Lotuger, and the sands of the Kharahat have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Now, staying with William Ruto, his defense team is pushing for a ruling of no case to answer, saying the prosecution has not presented enough evidence to convict them of crimes against humanity. Jack Parrock reports from The Hague. The defense team for Kenya's deputy president, William Ruto, want the case against him dropped, saying the prosecution has not provided enough evidence for a case to be built against him. The deputy president and his co-defendant, journalist Joshua Sang, both deny the charges against them of crimes against humanity. They're accused of orchestrating post-election violence in 2008, which saw 1,200 people killed. Anton Steinberg is a prosecution lawyer at the International Criminal Court. The prosecution, however, intends to take the chamber at its word and to focus not on the credibility, reliability and cogency of the evidence, but rather on whether the quantum of the evidence, if if accepted, may establish the guilt of the accused. The defence team has succeeded in getting all evidence in the case to be heard publicly, despite concerns by the prosecution that it could jeopardise the safety of witnesses. Liz Evenson is from Human Rights Watch. There have been pervasive allegations of witness interference. There has been a determined campaign by the government of Kenya to undermine the credibility of the ICC. And there have also been shortcomings in the court's own approach, in the prosecution's investigations, in its witness protection measures. But these are the kinds of challenges that a court like this should be expecting to face. A similar case against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta was dropped here at the International Criminal Court at the end of 2014. The prosecutor of the ICC says the Kenyan government has tampered with witnesses and forced them to recant evidence in both the Kenyatta case and this one. The Kenyan government has campaigned against the court's permission for recanted evidence to be used in the Ruto trial. The ICC will continue to hear submissions on the no case to answer motion in the case of William Ruto. If the defence is unsuccessful in getting the trial terminated, it will continue well into next year and is likely to play a major role in the Kenyan elections in 2017. Jack Parrick, The Hague. Evidence on the ground indicates that some civilians trapped in the besieged Syrian town of Medaya have been dying from starvation. That's according to members of the UN team which successfully managed to get aid into the town this week after months of being denied access. UN Radio's Matthew Wells reports. The sound of UN aid finally on the move into the town of Madaya, where 30,000 residents were facing starvation after receiving no food or medical supplies since October. Harrowing photographs and videos had shown the gaunt faces of children, men and women for weeks, but a deal between the UN, Syrian authorities and rebel commanders finally allowed dozens of trucks access to Madaya, along with aid for around 20,000 in the towns of Fouad and Kafraya. The UN Refugee Agency's representative in Syria, Sajik Malik, rode with the convoy entering Madaya. He said reports of starvation had not been exaggerated. What we saw and what we heard uh, on the ground, that there have been deaths because of, uh, because of hunger there. People around us uh, who were 
shivering, who were uh, very frail, very weak. They were desperately looking for something while we were offloading cars, um, kids and everybody around the cars asking our drivers, ourselves, to see if there's anything that we can offer them. The World Food Programme said that 250 tonnes of food, rice and other supplies had been provided to Madaya, along with eight tonnes of medical supplies. Apart from the urgent need to evacuate 400 patients, the World Health Organization reported that only three doctors were operating in an almost non-functional health facility. The UN's humanitarian affairs chief, Stephen O'Brien, stressed that many other places were also in dire need around Syria. Madaya is tragically far from unique. There are about 400,000 people in Syria who are trapped in areas besieged, and that's within the 4.5 million or so who are in the overall hard-to-reach areas. At UN headquarters on Monday evening, Syria's ambassador Bashar Jafari told reporters a different story from what had been witnessed on the ground. There is no shortage of humanitarian assistance in Madaya. We've been seeing pictures of starving people. Are those fabrications? Yes, indeed. He said that aid supplies had been stolen and diverted by what he said were armed terrorist groups. Stephen O'Brien disputed that claim, saying the UN had faith in its partner organisation, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, or SARC. These uh, supplies that have been transported today are intended to help support the uh, desperate people in Madaya uh, for a month, is about the, uh, the, the volume of it. Uh, it. We are doing that under the auspices of distribution by SARC. Uh, that is why we are very, very careful to make sure that uh, allegations of diversion uh, can be dispelled and disproved because of using uh, the uh, appropriate uh, local and highly knowledge- knowledgeable uh, aid distribution body, in this case, uh, SARC. Matthew Wells, United Nations. The Deputy International Relations Minister says it was a tremendous honour for South Africa to chair the G77 in China during a momentous period at the UN. Llewellyn Landers was speaking on the sidelines of the official handover ceremony in New York of the chairmanship of the group from South Africa to Thailand. He believes the group played a critical role in the achievement of a number of major multilateral agreements expected to shape the future of the globe for generations to come. Sherwin Bryce Pease reports. I request and invite the protocol to escort this distinguished delegation of the Kingdom of Thailand to the podium. Passing on the baton, or the gavel as it were, as Thailand takes charge from South Africa of the largest developing group within the UN system. Llewellyn Landers speaking at the ceremony. In all these processes, the group of 77 and China played a crucial role in pursuing the interests of the millions of people living in developing countries. It is surely a tribute to the solidarity and collective spirit of our membership that ensured that the group was able to pursue significant outcomes that protected the interests of developing countries and advanced the development agenda of the Global South. Among the group's major contributions, the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals last September and the groundbreaking Paris Climate Change Agreement during the UN's 70th anniversary year. Landers, speaking privately to SABC News, expressed his view that the group had an important leadership role to play moving forward. Certainly, and it is precisely because of the divide between the Global North and the Global South. There will always be relationship between the global south and the global north that's critical uh, we we don't deny that it will always be there 
However, <coughs> it is also critical for the G77 in China to play the role of representing developing nations of the world. And uh, as long as there's poverty, inequality, unemployment, uh, wherever, then that is where the G77 in China uh, must be seen. Acting President of the General Assembly, Ambassador Kairat Abdrakmanov. I wish to congratulate the delegation of South Africa for its successful leadership at the helm of the Group of 77 and China in 2015. Under the stewardship of Ambassador Kingsley Mamabola and through the dedication of his entire South African delegation, the group played a central role in promoting the interests of developing countries and made valuable contribution to the work of the United Nations. UN Chief Ban Ki-moon lauded South Africa's leadership and urged the group to now chart the course for the implementation of the historic agreements adopted last year. None of these historical outcomes would have been achieved without commitment and leadership of the group of 77 and China. You worked to forge consensus, you scaled up ambition, you have helped redefine development. Now our attention must have shifted to implementation. This year offers several strategic opportunities to chart the course of implementation. Thailand's term of office will end in January 2017. I'm Sherbin Bricebees in New York. There's been mixed political reaction to the White House's presidential proclamation to suspend South Africa's participation in AGOA if it does not allow American poultry on local shelves by March 15. If South Africa misses a 60-day deadline, they will not get the duty-free benefit for agricultural products provided under the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA. And Tebo Makobo reports. Alliance partners, the ANC and the SACP, say South Africa is a sovereign state and cannot be dictated to by the United States. Both parties say they will not allow South Africa to be used as a dumping grounds for U.S. products, insisting that they support government on its stance to ensure that all agricultural products from the U.S. are safe for human consumption. ANC spokesperson Zizi Kotwa. It is important that we appreciate South Africa as a sovereign and independent state with its own constitution and its own national interest. We can't be bullied. That's why, in fact, many countries are looking at south-to-south relations are going east because you can't in equal relations have such conditionalities which we are using the size of our economy to squeeze the small economies. This call strengthens south-to-south relations where the relationship has no conditionalities but it's about development and growth. And we call on our government not to allow itself to be bullied because South Africa cannot be a dumping ground. The SACP also asked the U.S. government to stick to the initial mandate of the African Growth and Opportunity Act AGOA. This trade agreement was signed in 2000 as a non-reciprocal trade and investment policy between the U.S. and some African countries. Some speculate that the U.S. wants to suspend South Africa's benefits from the agricultural products under Goa because of some criticism from the alliance partners. But SACP's Alex Mashilo says it is wrong to blame the delay on the alliance. 
the reason that was given by the Obama administration announcing the suspension of South Africa from ACOA was an allegation that South Africa was not doing enough to eliminate the barriers to the U.S. exports. As to what those barriers were, Obama did not say. Also, he did not make any mention of the alliance. So if he had made any mention of the alliance, he would obviously be out of order because our alliance partners are independent formations. At this stage, we'll be cautious to respond to that because we have not heard him say anything about our alliance. The GEO, on the other hand, says the souring relations between South Africa and the United States has caused a delay in the implementation of the agreement under the African Growth and Opportunity Act. DA leader Musima Imane says this tug of war is an indication of mistrust between the two countries. South Africa, in its management of the negotiations of AGOA, left the deadlines for far too long. This is a matter that is critical for South Africa's economy in terms of trade agreements between South Africa and the U.S. and the export and importing of key agricultural products. It's as a result of that that this delay by the U.S. government is saying to the people of this country that there's a souring relationship between South Africa and the U.S. And what this will critically mean in the long run is, in fact, South Africa may run the chance of not being able to be benefactors of this issue. Last week, an agreement was reached on the final barriers to the import of American poultry into South Africa. But yesterday, in a surprise move, the White House issued a presidential proclamation that will suspend South Africa's trade benefits on agricultural products under Goa if Pretoria does not allow American poultry on local shelves within 60 days. I am Debo Mokobo in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Okay, coming up still ahead, we've got a story about Tabo Mbeki and his letters, migration, and of course, conflict zones around the world. Right now, time for the news headlines. Yes, Onele. Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto's defense team pushes for a ruling of no case to answer following charges of crimes against humanity. Sudan to hold a referendum in Defoe on April 11th to the 13th over whether or not the war-torn region will stay divided into five states or reunite. And Wurz University in South Africa reopens face-to-face registrations after it was suspended on Monday due to the hashtag for student protest. Channel African News, I am Monelintzinzi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
The much-anticipated Thabo Mbeki series of letters have already caused a stir and his foundation says more will come with no holding back any punches. The former South African president released the first of 10 letters this weekend talking about one of the much-anticipated Thabo Mbeki series of letters that have already caused a stir. The letter, which focuses on a supposed coup plot by prominent ANC leaders, sees Mbeki clarifying what happened and clearing himself of any wrongdoing. Angela Bolawana reports. The CEO of the Tabumbeki Foundation, Max Bokwana, says the former president, Tabumbeki, has been under pressure from a number of people, particularly the youth, to explain certain aspects of his term in office. Bokwana says the former president then felt that he would want to contribute to the drafting of his history. I think because we have allowed um, so many people to write about us and tend to move away from the truth, it has become important for President Mbeki because he's still alive, he has been able to assess these things and we've been able to discuss some of them with him, is to respond factually and truthfully in a very simple, readable, non-academic manner for South Africans and Africans to understand some of the decisions that he was part of when he was at the helm of this nation. The letter addressed a coup plot which was said to have been masterminded by Matthew Posa, Tokyo Sohwale and Cyril Ramaphosa. At the time, this was used by a number of people as an example of how paranoid Mbeki was. Mbeki says, contrary to popular belief, he did not initiate the allegations, nor did he meddle in the investigations around the plot. He was also never involved in the naming of the alleged coup plotters, and instead, the late Minister of Police, Steve Trete, named the three. He also explains that some senior ANC people, including Jacob Zuma, who was then Deputy President, and then Secretary General Khalima Mutlante, and relevant ministers were brought in to look at the tapes of the Mpumalanga men who made the original claims. Bokona says this is the first of ten letters that Mbeki is releasing to deal with some distortions against him. Look, you can anticipate the themes. It's about all of these so-called controversial issues and the labelings of uh, President Mbeki. We're going to respond to all of them. Um, no holding of the bars and will respond straightforward, truthfully and honestly. Um, so far, we, we anticipate that for the next 10 weeks, every Monday at 10 o'clock, we will release an article. The letter comes at a time when South Africans, especially on social media, have been comparing the presidency of Tawumbeki to the current presidency following President Zuma naming three finance ministers in a week. Some sectors of society were questioning why Zuma was not recalled. Political analyst Yinko Maluleke says, however, that Mbeki would probably not care about the nostalgia around him. I don't think he intends to provide fuel uh, to such kind of, uh, of people and their thinking. I think he... He just cares about what he sees as uh, misconceptions and distorted information around uh, why he did what he did and what he might not have uh, what might not have been reported correctly. I really think that's what he's concerned about. However, Maluleke says he's not convinced Mbeki chose the right topics to focus on. He says it would have been more enriching if he had focused on the state of the country and the continent because his legacy will be remembered positively. The reception on social media where the letter was released has been mixed. While many welcomed the concept, some have questioned the recounting of events in this letter and others the timing. That report by Angela Bolawana. A new report by the United Nations has documented that the world should prepare for an overall increase in the number of people who are migrating away from home. 
that a report, Trends in International Migrant Stock, says that the number of international migrants is growing faster than the global population, although the figure represents just 3% of the overall population of 7 billion. Migrants have an important economic role, sending around $400 billion in 2014 to their families in developing countries. Bella Hovi is from the Population Division at the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs. At the global level, I think it's important to note that the number of international migrants is growing faster than the total population, which shows clearly that there is greater mobility and a demand for migration, and we should prepare for that. As a proportion of the total population, it's still relatively small because it's about 3% of the total population of 7 billion plus that is currently living in another country than they were born. Is that a good thing? Migration brings a lot of benefits, and what we often see in the media is the challenges of migration. There are certainly some, such as irregular migration, abuse of migrants, xenophobia, and discrimination at destination. But over the years, we've found out that there are lots of contributions that migrants make, both at destination and at origin. And let me just give you one or two examples at at origin. In 2014, the World Bank estimated that migrants sent more than 400 billion U.S. dollars to their families in developing countries, which is more than three times official development assistance. And those monies are actually used to improve the health and the education of the children of the migrants, allowing the migrants access to financial means. Basically, they support the reduction of poverty and the implementation of the development goals of the UN. You mentioned irregular migrants, by which I assume you mean the people who are fleeing conflict in trouble spots in the Middle East, in Africa. Are they in some way giving migration a bad reputation? There have always been refugees, and refugees seeking asylum is not an illegal activity. Almost all the governments, many governments, about 150, have signed the UN Convention, and in that convention on refugees, there's clearly the right for refugees to seek asylum and not to be sent back to areas of conflict or where their life is endangered. So destination governments need to open their doors for refugees. At the same time, I think it's not sufficiently appreciated the contribution that even refugees can make when they are at the destination countries in terms of labor markets, creating jobs, doing jobs that maybe the nationals don't want to do, and then also sending home those monies that they earn to maybe the family members that are still at, uh, living in the country of origin. What does this report tell us that we don't already know? What we didn't know very well is uh, two things. One is that I just described that uh, the migrant population is growing faster than the total population, basically indicating that there's more mobility and migration and that we need to plan for that. And the second one is, certainly over the past 10 years, is that the number of refugees among the international migrants, that that number is going up as well. So... That is why we also need to work with countries to see whether we can have a better responsibility sharing of receiving refugees and not just that that burden is falling completely on the countries neighboring the areas that produce refugees. To what extent can this data tell us what will happen next? It's very difficult to predict migration. Migration is one of the three components of population change. One is fertility, one is mortality, and the third one is migration. The first two ones are relatively easy. It is technical work, but those are long-term trends that don't change very fast over time. Migration depends on policies. But what we can say, when you look at population change in general and those three components, that migration is becoming a greater 
component to population change in the future. That is because many societies are aging. There is actually some countries where the population is already declining and migration will actually uh, reduce the decline in the population. And as a component of that change, migration will become more important and therefore also more a focus of policies and of management, uh, we think. Bella Hovey of the Population Division at the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs talking to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. Still ahead, we've got our economic report with uh, Tabisa Luhoko and Moshe Budi with your latest and final update on sport. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, 24 million children living in crisis zones are out of school. South Sudan is home to the highest proportion of out-of-school children with over half of primary and lower secondary-age children not accessing an education. UNICEF adds that the collecting data on children in conflict settings is extremely difficult, and therefore these figures may themselves not adequately capture the breadth and depth of the challenge. Now for more on this issue, here's UNICEF spokesperson Patsy Nakel. What we know uh, at UNICEF is in uh, 22 uh, countries involved in conflict, we have more than 109 million children that are of primary and sort of uh, lower secondary school age. That's basically between the ages of 6 and 15. So probably the most vulnerable formative years of a child. And we know that, according to our estimates, one in four, so about 25% of these 109 million children are actually not accessing education. This is the future of these countries, and in countries that are in conflict, they will at one point become the very building blocks of nation building. They will be the, the ones most crucially needed to rebuild a country after a conflict. Let's reflect on the significance of schools and societies. I mean, what makes them even more important in conflict settings? A school is very often provides shelter for children. It's a place where they can feel safe, it's a place where they can feel normal in a situation that, that is anything but normal, which is conflict and war and destruction and violence around them. So all of these children don't have access to all of those positive things that come with being in school, with getting an education. So we are extremely concerned about this number, and, and we ask the international community, we ask that, that we all together uh, put a much higher premium, a much higher focus, and priority on education in emergency situations, in conflict. And right now, that is just not happening. We know that, for instance, uh, there is a huge shortfall in funding of education in conflict, in humanitarian situations, which means that, that this will probably continue unless we change our priorities, unless we make sure that we actually do give funding to education in conflict. And what will be the consequences for children and the societies they grow in if the provision of education in emergencies is not prioritized? Now, we know that a school and an education are really the keys of a future for a child. And children are the future of any country. We all know that. And these are children that are being deprived of all of those positive effects that the school uh, provides. These are also children that already are traumatized by living in conflict, and school generally provides a bit of protection, psychological as well as actual physical protection to these children in a situation of war and in a situation of conflict, and they are being denied that. 
And this is their right. Every child in the world has a right to an education. This is something that we have all come together as an international community and agreed on. And we are not living up to our commitments to children in many parts of the world that continue to live in war and in conflict today. The consequences of not providing an education to these children is even more pertinent in situations of conflict because children in those situations are so much more vulnerable than other children. We need children in conflict countries and conflict zones to access education urgently. They need the protection. They need the education. They need to be able to have some hope for the future as well as their families need that and their societies uh, as a whole. So unless we do something about that, we are going to continue denying the very basic right to education that every child in the world has. UNICEF acknowledges that it is quite difficult to get precise data on out-of-school children in conflict settings and acknowledges that the situation could be far worse than it is reported. Yes, we do know that today, in the world today, we have more than 22 countries that are in conflict, but the number of casualties that define whether something is a conflict or not fluctuates, and we don't really have data on every single one of those countries. We have data on the 22, so we know already that that number is an underestimation. Because we, if we would be able to provide data for every single conflict and accurate data, then we are absolutely convinced that the number would be much higher. We, gathering data anywhere in the world, whether a country is in conflict or not, already is, is a difficult thing, especially in underdeveloped countries. That we know for a fact. In our daily lives at UNICEF, we know that that is a challenge. In a conflict zone, it becomes even more of a challenge. But we go with what we have. And already what we have now the estimates that we have now through our offices that work in these countries, through our partners and the governments that work there and the international organizations and NGOs that work in those countries, this is the indication that we have. And already this indication that we know is basically an underestimation is way staggering, way, way too high to be acceptable. That's Patsy Nakel, spokesperson for the United Nations Children's Fund, on the line talking to James Rabotata. Now time for our final economic update. Here is... Thanks, Jazz. I'm Tabiso Lohoku. The South African government says the current AGOA benefits with the United States remain in place. U.S. President Barack Obama on a Tuesday ordered that agricultural benefits be suspended by March the 15th if South Africa didn't comply fully with the various requirements. The order will be lifted as soon as the shipment of American poultry enters the South African market. South Africa's Trade and Industry Ministry says it's working closely with the Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Embassy in Pretoria to facilitate the first shipment. Amina Akram reports. We apologize for lack of soundbite. Nigeria's state-backed Amcon Bad Bank says it plans to sell its majority stake in a Peugeot Automobile Nigeria Limited. Pijo Citroen is the technical partner to the Nigerian assembly plant, which has capacity to assemble 240 cars a day. 
The Asset Management Corporation of Nigeria owns 79.3% of Pan Nigeria Limited and acquired the stake four years ago. After purchasing the company's debt and taking some as equity. South Africa's manufacturing output has declined by 1% year-on-year November last year. The decline in factory production was largely due to a sharp fall in uh, the basic iron-steel production. In October, manufacturing output also contracted. The top price of Kenya's benchmark grade AA coffee has declined at an auction compared with the previous sale. The East African country produces quality coffee that is highly sought after by roasters worldwide for blending with the beans from other countries. Crude futures have risen for the first time in eight days. The 30 US dollar mark is both a psychological and financial threshold. There are forecasts that limited decline in U.S. supplies next year and steady growth in global demand will help ease the glut only in the third quarter of 2017. The South African rand is trading at 16.74 U.S. dollars, 11.50 Botswana Pula, 11.02 in Zambia, 0.69 British pound, 0.92 euro. Gold $1084, platinum $837 an ounce, brand crude oil $31.10 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lohoku. Now time for our sports final sports report of the day. Here's Mosibudi Makura. Morning sports fans and starting off with athletics news. The whistleblowing couple who blew open doping allegations in Russian athletics insisted on Tuesday they regretted nothing despite threats that have forced them into hiding. Former athlete Julio Stefanova as well as husband Vitaly Stefanova, a former employee of the Russian anti-doping agency revealed in a German television documentary in 2014 claims of widespread doping fraud in their country's track and field setup. The couple and their young son live at a secret location in Germany and have had to move eight times since their arrival in December 2014. In the wake of those allegations, a blistering report by the World Anti-Doping Agency Independent Commission found state-sponsored systematic doping in Russian athletics and the country was suspended by the IAAF World Athletics Governing Body throwing its participation at the 2016 Olympics into doubt. Meanwhile, WADA's commission will publish their second report in Munich on Thursday, co-author and former WADA president Dick Pound promises it will be more explosive than the first one. On to football news, Zambia coach George Luanda Mina is delighted with his size friendly win over Angola. Shapalapola rallied from a one down from from being one down to beat Angola 2-1 in Johannesburg this past weekend in both sides build-up matches ahead of the 2016 African Nations Championship tournament in Rwanda. Zambia are expected to wrap up their five-day training camp in South Africa on Wednesday when they face Mamelodi Sundowns junior team in a training camp or other training 
second game before heading to Kigali, Rwanda. Shepolopolo are in Group D of the Chan tournament where they have been drawn against um, uh, Uganda, Mali as well as Zimbabwe. On to cricket news, South African speed star Dale Steyn has, has been ruled out of the third test against England, scheduled to be played at the Wanderers on Thursday due to a shoulder injury. The fast bowler sustained the injury during the opening match of the series in Durban. Wanderers cricket ground groundsman Bathwell Butelezi says he is prepared the pitch in such a way that it will both suit the bowlers and the batsmen. Butelezi says he expects wickets to come thick and fast as well as the runs. We're preparing a pitch that I prepared. So even uh, uh, bowlers must get uh, wickets, batsmen must get uh, some runs. On to rugby news, the South African Rugby Union has laid out the criteria for the new Springbok coach. The after Saru announced earlier this week that the Springbok coach will be headhunted after opting not to advertise the position. Saru says the candidate must have an impeccable record with working with the media and must understand Saru's transformation goals with regards to the 2019 Rugby World Cup. Our rugby analyst Willem Strauss says there's no need to panic as the rugby season is still in recess. Obviously, it's a rugby or the stream of season will only kick off in June uh, when uh, South Africa hosts Ireland in the three-match series. And then it's off to the rugby championship where the four nations, which, by the way, were the four uh, teams that played in the semifinals of the Rugby World Cup. Springboks, All Blacks, Argentina and Australia will play one another in a double round. And then the end of the year, too. So I guess they got a little bit of time in terms of the, the fact that uh, the stream of season only kicks off in June. Uh, so obviously now they, they, they're not in a hurry, don't uh, want to be rushed into something. And finally, golf news as one of the qualifying tournaments for the 2016 Open Championship. This week's Joburg Open is one of the biggest opportunities for local South African professionals to take their careers to the next level. The Joburg Open tees off on Thursday at the Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club. Michael Flissmas reports. The European Tour co-sanctioned event is off at Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club on Thursday with a strong field including new SA Open champion Brandon Stone, four-time major winner Ernie Els, former Masters champion Trevor Immelman and 1999 Open champion Paul Laurie. And as they tee off the first, they'll see the Open Championship's famous old claret jug standing there as a reminder of the added bonus of doing well here this week. Former Open champion Laurie certainly believes the most famous trophy in golf will provide plenty of inspiration for the flood of young stars in the field this week. It's been great when you see the claret jug on the first tee. Everyone connects on one of those trophies that's just so famous and so easily recognisable. Every year when we start off, uh, half the field I don't even know, to be fair. It's amazing. I've been out here a long time. It's my 25th year. And uh, every week there seems to be a young lad who hits it a long way, a good short game, good player good attitude. Uh, last week there was two South Africans finished first and second, young lads, so it's great to see. Michael Flissmas, Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club. The Zaya Sports News at the South stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine for today, Wednesday the 13th. 
From myself, Jazza Rod, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Any comments, you can email us at info at channelafrica.org or SMS plus 27-82332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news, here's Jonathan Butler. I pay respect on Channel Africa.